We are just a month away from Easter. Can you believe it? Uh, On the last Sunday of March, we are going to gather together and we are going to celebrate that Jesus is alive. Of course, the rest of the world will join us on that one day because we actually celebrate that every Sunday. Uh, But the rest of society joins us one Sunday a year in recognizing uh, that there is something special that Christians celebrate about Jesus being alive on that day. And let me tell you something. It's a great day for you to invite your friends and neighbors, folks who you know who don't go to church, to come to church with you. Actually, they expect you to invite them to church on Easter. If they know that you go to church, they know that you're a Christian, and you don't invite them, they're probably saying, well, what's wrong with me? Why did, does he think I'm not good enough to go to his church or her church? So it's, it's the perfect Sunday. If you've got some friends and neighbors who aren't connected to a church, uh, think about who those might be and invite them to join you on Easter, Easter Sunday, because people are looking for something. Can't you tell that? I mean, it, all you have to do is watch the, uh, the political news today, and people are looking for something. They're looking for someone, and isn't it funny that despite the fact that today's Americans are the wealthiest they've ever been, the healthiest they've ever been, the most technologically advanced society that has ever occupied the planet, most Americans today would not describe their lives as abundant lives. Despite all of the obvious advantages, people are searching for something more. Let me give you just one indication of how I know that people are searching for something more. In the year 1954, there were 3,500 how-to books. Today, the self-help publishing industry is, a, is a, an $11 billion industry because people are looking for something. They're looking for some answer to some question. And you know what? The more books we publish, the more help we seem to need. And the only people who look like are actually being helped are the people who are writing self-help books. But but it's more than that. Because according to the Hoover Institute, there are presently 77,000 clinical psychologists, 192,000 clinical social workers, 105,000 mental health counselors, 50,000 marriage and family therapists, 17,000 nurse psychotherapists, and 30,000 life coaches. And the fields keep growing and growing and growing because the demand continues to increase because people are looking for something. And the more money they get, the more health they seem to acquire, the more technology we seem to, seem to get our hands wrapped around. It doesn't seem to satisfy the deepest longing of their hearts. Uh, Simon Sinek, a secular leadership author, says this, The more we try to make ourselves feel better, the worse we seem to feel. Isn't it true? I mean, just look around. The worse we seem to feel based on our own efforts. There is a quality of life that we use to define living. There is something more than a pulse and a brainwave involved. This is why we say things like, this is the life. You ever, you ever heard anybody say that? Maybe they go on vacation or they're, 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 they're sitting back with a cup of coffee in the morning and they're looking out over the ocean, a beautiful view out of a balcony, and they're saying, ah, this is the life. What do we mean by that? Do we mean that we weren't living before that? No, there's something about the quality of life that we define living based on its quality. We, we also say the opposite. Have you ever heard anybody say, or maybe you've said, I'm just dying on the inside? What do we mean by that? 
We mean that there's some quality, there's some, some element to living that we can't seem to get our hands on. We can't seem to buy it. We can't seem to find it in technology. We can't seem to find it in a self-help book. And it doesn't matter how much medication we take, and it doesn't matter how many counselors we see. There's something out there, there's something elusive that we just can't quite wrap our hands around. So we're beginning a brand new series today that's going to take us up to Easter, and we're calling it Raised to Life, because I believe that's exactly the mission that Jesus has in the world today, a mission to raise us to life. He actually gave us his mission statement in John chapter 10, verse 10. We looked at this last week. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this about himself, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it how? abundantly. This is the mission of Jesus. So if this has been the mission of Jesus all along, we've known this was his mission for more than 2,000 years, what does it mean that his mission has, has been to come to give us abundant life? And how does he accomplish this mission? And how do we get in on it? And if people are so desperately looking for some sort of life, an abundant life, why aren't more people turning to Jesus? And why have some people who have claimed to turn to Jesus, why are they the most miserable people among us? There must be something we're missing. There must be some element of what it is that Jesus said he came to do that that we don't fully understand or we haven't fully gotten hold of. And I think it has to do with maybe one of the universe's great paradoxes. You know what a paradox is. A paradox means two uh, things that seem to be opposite or contradictory, and yet they work together. One of the great paradoxes of the universe is this. Without death, there can be no life. That great theological movie that Disney produced called Lion King said, said this in the song. It's the circle of what? Circle of life. You know, that wasn't original to Disney. They didn't think that up. It actually is in the Bible. If you look back what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 24 and 25, here's what he said. Very truly, I say to you that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.21, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he said again in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, he said, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ has been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There it is. That Jesus' mission was to come and to give us life and to give it more abundantly. The reason we don't embrace the abundant life Jesus has come to give us, the reason so much of the world has missed the abundant life that Jesus has come to offer is because we don't like what we have to do to get it. And that is we have to die. And, the, and this is what is so critical for us to understand as we begin this series about what does it mean to be raised to life. That the reason people have struggled to find hope in Jesus is because he teaches that in order to receive abundant life, he is offering for us. And which we are longing that we have to let go of control. We have to surrender control to him and we have to be willing to die. And here's what is even harder to understand and what we're going to look at today. 
that Jesus loves you enough to let you die in order to raise you back to life. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. In John chapter 10, Jesus, uh, John records the mission of Jesus as saying he came to give us life and give it more abundantly. And then in John chapter 11, he gives us a living illustration of what that means. And as we go through this passage this morning, I want you to listen for a few key words. And if you're somebody who writes in your Bible, maybe you would underline them or circle them. Or if you're a note taker, you can use the back of the bulletin. But I want you to listen for a few words. I want you to listen for the word love. I want you to listen for the word death. I want you to listen for the word glory. And then one little tiny word that is so easy to overlook The word so, S-O. So if you look for those four words while we get into this passage, and let me just set it up that the uh, Pharisees, the religious leaders, are targeting Jesus at this point. Uh, They have already proclaimed and attempted on three different occasions to kill Jesus. And so Jesus has left Jerusalem, and uh, he he has sort of distanced himself from the religious leaders when this story takes place. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, that's an interesting little, uh, little parenthetical inclusion there. It, this hasn't happened in John's gospel yet. When we get to chapter 12, you're going to see this story. But when John was writing this story, this, uh, this occasion of Mary pouring the oil on Jesus' feet must have become so well known uh, that it's what defined her. And so he uses that here to tell us uh, that this is that same Mary he wants us to know. So two sisters, Mary, Martha, and a brother named Lazarus. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus knows something that nobody else knows. Jesus knows that, in fact, Lazarus will die, but that his death will not be the end of the story. Now, this is important because it's going to come up later in the weeks ahead as we look at this entire chapter during this series but, but what you need to recognize is there's going to come a point in the story where Lazarus dies. And for Jesus' disciples, they must have been scratching their head thinking, wait a minute. Jesus said that this sickness would not end in death. But Jesus knows something that his disciples and that Mary and Martha and that even Lazarus don't know. And it's interesting that he said this is ultimately going to be for God's glory. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. Because back in John chapter 9, that's exactly what Jesus said about the man who was born blind. And the disciples asked him, Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? And Jesus said it wasn't anybody's sin. It was so that God's glory could be revealed. Here again, now, in John chapter 11, Jesus is saying the same thing. This sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God to be revealed. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. 
Now, why would Jesus do this? There's a lot of speculation about what Jesus was doing during this time. And the scripture doesn't tell us. But I think it's safe to assume, based on the rest of the chapter that we're going to read, that Jesus spent this time praying. That he spent this time wrestling with his Father's will. Because what Jesus was about to do was going to be the final straw. This was going to be the final sign that John would record that would both seal Jesus' fate with the religious leaders and it would unequivocally prove that he was the Messiah. This was going to be a big, big deal. And Jesus, knowing all things, knew exactly what it would mean for him to go back into Bethany and do what it was he was about to do. Verse 7, and then, sa- and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. So he waited two days. And now he says, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Now, this idea of light John is repeating in almost every chapter. He's trying to communicate to you, hey, Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. And here, Jesus makes this statement saying, there are 12 hours in a day. I'm only going to be with you for a little bit longer. And we have to do this work while it is daytime, while there is light. Verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, If he is sleeping, he will get better. Now, it's easy for us to think, oh, those disciples, they didn't get it. They don't understand. Can't they see what's going on? Well, you wouldn't have seen it and understood it. I wouldn't have seen it and understood it. What did Jesus tell them just a few verses ago? Just a couple days ago, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. So when Jesus said, Lazarus is sleeping, of course they don't think Lazarus is dead. Because Jesus has already said that it wasn't going to end in death. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Now, wait a minute. Hold on right there. Because one of the problems that we have as people who read the Bible, if you're someone who reads the Bible regularly, if you're, if you're in church often or you've been in church a long time and you hear these passages of Scripture, um, that we have a disadvantage over some of you in the room who may be here who don't hear the Scripture frequently or, or maybe this is new to you because the word glad probably jumped out at you and maybe for the rest of us it didn't jump out at us. We just read right over it. What is he talking about? He was glad that he wasn't there to save Lazarus? He he was glad that Lazarus died? He's saying that if he had been there, it wouldn't have happened. Something that we're going to read in just a couple weeks that Mary and Martha also knew. When they confront Jesus as he walks back into town after their brother's been in the grave for four days, and they both say to him, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus is saying, I'm glad I wasn't there to save him. I'm glad he died. Now, look with me back at at verse 5 and 6 one more time because it's important that we remember this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. 
John wants to make sure that his readers know without a doubt that Jesus loved these people. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved them. He loved them. He loved them. John wants you to know he loved them. And it is because of his love for Lazarus and his sisters that Jesus is not going to prevent Lazarus' death. Because Jesus knows that the only way for Lazarus to really live is first by dying. And Jesus loves him enough to let him do it. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, it's okay. This is okay. Because Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And and, and we understand that. We see the big picture. We see the whole story. But I want to remind yourself, put yourself back in real time in this story and understand that Lazarus really died and that nobody who knew Lazarus, nobody who cared for Lazarus, understood or knew how this story was going to turn out. They could not see the end of the story. So often we view our circumstances from the confines of time and space, but God is not limited that way. And your suffering, whatever you're enduring, whatever hardship you are facing, will either make you a person of deeper faith or a person who seeks greater control. And the difference is found in how we choose to understand our pain and suffering. And we only have two choices. We can choose to judge our circumstances in light of the fact that Jesus loves us. We can look at the pain, we can look at the loss, we can look at the grief, and we can say, but he is a good, good father. It is who he is, and he loves me. And so I will judge my circumstances based on the fact that I know that God loves me. Or we can judge Jesus' love based on our circumstances. In which case, we will find ourselves in a difficult situation, we will find ourselves in grief and in loss, and we will question the love of Jesus every time. Because if Jesus really loved me, how would he have let my brother die? If Jesus really loved me, how could he have let the diagnosis be cancer? If Jesus really loved me, how could he have let my father leave? If Jesus really loved me, how could he have let my wife cheat on me? If Jesus really loved me, how could he have done this to me? We will either judge our circumstances based on the love of Jesus, or we will judge the love of Jesus based on our circumstances. And the first option will lead you to a deeper faith that you have never experienced, but the second will cause you to fight for control. Because if Jesus doesn't love you enough to control your circumstances, then somebody has to take charge, don't they? And I need to grab hold of these circumstances and do everything I can because I'm not sure that Jesus loves me enough to do it. You will either judge your circumstances based on the love of Jesus or you will judge the love of Jesus based on your circumstances. Lazarus' family could not see how God could be glorified in this situation. And if that is where you stand today, listen to me. Wait for it. Wait for it. Don't give up. Don't give in. 
God is doing more than you can know. He is doing more than you can understand. You see the story in real time. God already sees the conclusion of the stories. Don't give up. Trust him and judge your circumstances based on the love that God has for you. Verse 15. Here's what he said. Listen to it again. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Here's our word. So, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Do you realize Jesus is saying that he let Lazarus die because he loved the disciples. He loved Mary and Martha. He loved everyone who would hear this story all the way down through the ages that he let Lazarus die because he loves you. And he understood that by letting Lazarus die, the glory of God would shine through. And he loves you enough to want you to see that. And you have to ask yourself, if you're a thinking person today, you have to ask yourself, how is this love? And here's the key. That love lets Lazarus die because Lazarus' death reveals the glory of God. What kind of love is that? It's a love that refuses to give us what we want at the expense of what we need. And what we need is a revelation of the glory of God. So the logical next question is, well, then what is the glory of God? Is, it, is God some sort of sick narcissist who wants himself promoted and he wants to receive all the glory and so he's willing to let us die for his own selfish gains? Why would the glory of God be worth the life of a friend? What is this glory of God? Let me just share with you just shortly, briefly, what the glory of God. We could do a whole sermon series on this, but let me just share with you just a glimpse of what I believe it means when we talk about the glory of God. The glory of God is best understood in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to understand the glory of God, you look to Jesus. That's the living illustration that God has given us that has been recorded through the ages that we see. The glory of God is what raises the dead and restores sight to the blind. The glory of God is what causes the lame to walk walk and turns water into wine. It is the glory of God that feeds 5,000 people with nothing but two loaves and five fish. It calms the storm and it invites us to step out of the boat and to walk on the surface of the deep. It is the glory of God that results and the salvation of his people. It is God's glory that saves us from brokenness, from depression, from suicide, from the ravages of abortion and the guilt and shame of adultery and from death brought by sin. It is the glory of God. It is the hope of all mankind. And without the glory of God, there is no hope for any of us. This is why God loves us enough To go to any length that we would see his glory because it is God's glory that results in our salvation. And Jesus loves Lazarus too much to leave him in a life that is less than abundant. And Jesus loves us enough to allow Lazarus to die in order that we might see the glory of God because that's how deep his love goes. Love is demonstrated by doing whatever you have to do to help people see and experience the glory of God. That's the true definition of love. Not meeting every want, but pointing to the only thing that provides for every need. And that's God's glory. So let me ask you, what in you must die? in order to be raised to an abundant life. 
See, there's something, there's something inside of all of us. There's something that's keeping us from, from receiving what it is that Jesus came to give us. And it doesn't matter who you elect as president. It doesn't matter how much money is in your 401k. It doesn't matter how your relationships are with the people around you. As long as this thing inside of you and inside of me is let live, is allowed to continue to live, we will never experience the full and abundant life that Jesus has come to offer. What is it inside of you that must die in order for you to be raised to life? Is it pride? Is it pride? Are you so consumed with yourself, either in a way that proves that you're arrogant or in a way that proves that you're needy by always being down on yourself? Are you so consumed with yourself that you can't see the glory of God and you have to die to self in order to be raised back to life? Is it pride? Is it lust? Are you consumed with lust to the point that you can't see anything else? And the lust itself is driving you to find lesser loves rather than looking for the only one who will love your soul for all eternity? Is it lust? Is it fear? Fear of what will happen? Fear of what the future will hold? Fear of what somebody thinks? What in you must die? Because whatever it is, whatever it is that you're unwilling to allow to die is the very thing that you are holding on to to try to maintain control. And the reason you're trying to maintain control is because you do not trust Jesus to love you in every circumstance, no matter what. Amen. Letting go of these things and allowing them to die will inevitably result in suffering for you and possibly even for the people who are around you. But I want you to remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Do you hear what he said? That it doesn't compare. I mean, I, I know some of you have been through some very difficult situations that, that, that just defy my ability to understand. But can I tell you that according to the scripture, according to what is true, no matter how bad that situation is, it doesn't compare to the glory of God. I heard a fellow speak this week who is a cancer survivor. He was only given six months to live. He's been living for six years. And here's what he said cancer has taught him. He said, he said you know what I've learned? I have learned to judge everything based on what it looks like in 10,000 years. Because in 10,000 years, I will be with Jesus in heaven, and I will look back on every circumstance, and I have to judge it based on what it looks like in 10,000 years. What does your circumstance look like in 10,000 years? It doesn't compare to the weight of the glory of God. That's what it means to judge your circumstances in light of the love of God. Listen to what happened. Verse 16, this is our final verse this morning. We'll pick up the rest of the chapter Next week, I love, I love this little verse. Then Thomas, also called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Now you remember Thomas. What, what do we often call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Not based on this verse, we don't. What's going on? The disciples have said, Jesus, you don't want to go back there. They're going to try to kill you there. And Jesus says, no, we have to go back. We have to go back so that the glory of God might be revealed. And Thomas says, well, you know what, fellas? It's been a good run. We better go with him and we might as well die right alongside of him. Thomas got it. 
And Thomas was the first of the disciples to stumble onto the truth that Jesus had been trying to teach the disciples all along. And that is that unless you are willing to die, unless you are willing to set aside your life, take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And Thomas understood and he said, let us go with him and die because he understood that something in him had to die in order to experience the full and abundant life that Jesus was offering. It wasn't just Lazarus who had to die. It was Mary, it was Martha, it was Thomas, it was every one of the disciples, and it's you and it's me. What is it that we need to allow to die in us that Jesus might raise us to life? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And as you do, I just want to remind you how this story will end. Because, you see, ultimately, Lazarus, as we know, will be raised back to life. But at what cost? Jesus knew the cost. That for Lazarus to be raised from the dead meant that Jesus would have to endure the cross, that Jesus would die. This is what Peter said, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Your abundant life came at a great cost. And Jesus loves you too much to allow you to continue to merely exist. He invites you to die so that he might raise you to life. Father, what an incredibly complicated truth. It runs against our instincts. Everything in me that longs for life seeks to hold on to the things that I have called life. Everything in me that seeks to be, have an abundant life tries to hold on to possessions, tries to hold on to ideas and thoughts, and yet you have been standing offering abundant and eternal life with a simple invitation to come and die. Lord, I pray today, as we've gathered here, that for everyone in the room, that we will evaluate the thing that we're holding on to, that we would lay it before you, and that we would stand in wonder and awe at your amazing, wondrous love. A love that not only loves us enough to let us die, but a love that loves us enough that you yourself would die, that we might be raised to life. Lord, today, today there are people in this room who are existing, but who are dead. Today, Lord, I pray that you would raise them to life. And for any who finds themselves in that situation who does not know how to take hold of that life, Lord, I pray that they would simply reach out to you with the simplest prayer, acknowledging, Lord, I'm dead, and you have called me to life. I believe in Jesus. I believe not only did he die for my sins, but I believe God has raised him from the dead, and I put my faith and my trust in him, and I want to live, Lord. Today, today you've heard that person who prayed that prayer. And you have raised them to life. 
And for that, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.